When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Why am I with Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. This is the final word cricket podcast weekend edition with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon and later with Jimmy Neesham, an interview which we recorded during the Cricket World Cup of 2019, sitting in the, uh, where were we, the bedster stand there at the Oval. He gave us some of his time the day before their match against Bangladesh, I reckon it was. It was a great chat about um, a lot of things, but specifically about the, the, the challenges he experienced uh, with his mental health when he was out of the New Zealand side. And a lot of people got in touch at the time and said that they drew quite a lot from that chat. So we thought we would roll it out again today, Jeff. I gave it a listen back um, about a week ago and it, it's a, it's a, it was a really entertaining listen. Though. Like, you know, you know that he's a, a funny individual from his work online, but um, he's very quick, very sharp when you sit down with him in person and, you know, relaxed into that interview beautifully. And, yeah, I, I, I felt like we'd done something really good. So I, I hope you enjoy that and I hope you enjoy Jimmy and the fact that he was, was willing to put himself on the line for us. And that's all part of our series of conversations in conjunction with Lord's Taverners. We'll tell you more about them later, but they're doing a lot of good work at the moment uh, through the lockdown isolation period around isolation and challenges uh, around mental health. So we'll talk about them in the break before we get to Jimmy. Jeff, what we're doing, as we said last week now, on the weekend show, now that we've got cricket going on, indeed, uh, England are seven for one in, uh, as, I, as, as yeah. we record. They lost Dom Sibley. He managed to... Uh, Oh, what a tragedy. I was just <laughs> devastated that when he was out. I was like, I, you mean I don't get to watch this for the next 19 well, hours? Well, often you oh. see, I mean, Kemar Roach, he beat him on the outside edge with an in-swinger, which I thought was quite impressive. But yes, <laughs> as I think NASA um, did the whole third man, as they call it, segment on Sky Cricket to unpick how it uh, played out and, and said that the way they responded enthusiastically when picking up Sibley was reflective of a plan coming off given 
uh, how little they bowled at the stumps at Sibley early last week. They tried to bore him out. That didn't work. They tried a new approach and uh, reaped dividends inside the first over. But it's always fun recording the show, Jeff, when we've got the cricket in front of us. So if anything major happens, we'll be sure to report it or indeed commentate on it, which will make absolutely no <laughs> sense when you're listening to this podcast. Uh, but yes, Jeff, so we, we, the weekend show, uh, which is now, um, well, uh, we're sort of scratching around as to what to call it, aren't we? Because the final word, weekend edition, it is what it says on the tin, but what we're trying to make it really is our yeah. weekly history lesson for want of a better descriptor. Right. So, yeah, what does it mean when it's a weekend edition? Um, and we've found that, you know, we get to actually get into the detail of the history segment via Nerd Pledge in a way that we feel on, on the regular show that we're, we sometimes need to move things along. Here, we don't. We, we mm. don't need to move along. Here, we are kings. <laughs> we are Vikings <laughs> ploughing across the wide, untrammeled seas to discover <laughs> the distant continent of North America, which already has people living in it, so you can't discover that. Um, but it, it's, yeah, it's like, what is it? Is it the, is it the, is it the history hour? Is it the... The, the, it's not the History Channel. That's what Tony Soprano is always watching, like some sort of World War Two documentaries. Um, is it the? Is it? Is it tales from the crypt? What is it? I don't know. We Maybe. should throw it out there. Well, why don't we have a conversation? If hit us up on Patreon, because uh, obviously the uh, we're using the Nerd Pledge numbers. So if you're on our on our Patreon DMs or indeed on our Twitter accounts, um, just ping us a note and because it can't really be the History Hour because we don't want to go for an hour because we've got an interview usually to accompany the weekend edition of yeah, the show. So, but that would in total be an hour, maybe. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I mean, the, the History Hour sounds like we're confident that we know what we're doing. I mean, realistically, it could be 34 minutes or it could be 70, but, like, it, it sounds confident. Yeah, the way, like we, the way that, we've been going recently, great. it's more likely to be 70, to be fair. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I've seen – we've done, again, quite a bit of research uh, before today's conversation, so we'll – maybe yeah, we'll judge – get through today. Maybe we'll base it on how long today's conversation goes for, and we'll use that as the benchmark for how we title Maybe it. we should call it – maybe the, the the weekend show, the history show, should be called In the Weeds because that's yeah. always your go-to phrase of, you know, that we're getting in the weeds. Um, it used to be a pejorative thing when I was – a nice. 420 link <laughs> it, it, it does well it used to be sort of a, it's a, not, not a it used to be a, a criticism uh, that you know I would um, that we would sort of uh, assert at our bosses in politics oh, get out of the fucking weeds you know the, the punters mm. don't want to hear you get in all the deep get on message Here's, tell your story this is different. We're not trying to win your vote. We want to be in the we weeds. We want to be in the weeds. We want to go the other way and we want to uh, hopefully, um, partly mm. uh, teach you a few things. That sounds patronising. We want to talk to you about a few things that you may not know about, but also it's the research well, part. Which well, I, things that we've literally just learned ourselves yeah, as well. I mean, like, we're we're that's like, right. hey, I found this out and I want to tell you. That's, 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 um, that's a better like way of describing it. It's show and tell. Yeah, that, that's it. It's, that, that's a better way of calling it. It's like we, we have, you know, the numbers prompt a dive and there's a number of ways that we do that dive and then we come out the other side of it and like, wow, here's what we got out of this, you know, quarter of an hour we spent with this number. I hope you enjoy. And mm. I have to say, I mean, I feel like I've learned quite a lot over the last couple of weeks. Well, maybe not the last couple of weeks, more like the last three months really since we've been sort of investing yeah. more time in this. So um, without further ado, Jeff, we, we have nerds and we have Julios as the Australian men's cricket team had in the 1990s. And, and um, Julios are, are those who are on our Patreon page who've um, given us a, a kind contribution to keep the show going and keeping the lights on and allowing us to do what we do a couple of times a week. But they elected not to go down the route of, of specifying a nerd pledge. Instead, they've given us a, a fixed amount and they are our Julios, mm. Jeff. Um, yeah, I mean, should should I do the title? Because you know, I you know that I like doing the title. Please do it. 
Nerd Pledge. <laughs> yes, the game of nerds, the game of pledges, the game we play with people on our Patreon page where they support the show by sending us a number of dollars and cents that relate to a cricketing number and we need to work out what it is. That's so crisp. I mean, even, even there, like, even though I've kind of gone on a bit about what we're doing, you've got that down to sort of a good 10, 15 seconds. It's it's tight. It, it's as good as my like C-bus disclaimer about past performance and, and future results <laughs> now. I feel like I've, I've really nailed this. So, so our Julio's for uh, this last couple of weeks, Graham Hartley has chipped in. Thank you, Graham. I assume that's the dad of Alex Hartley, England left arm spinner. He was big on TikTok um, during lockdown. So Alex's old man, I don't know whether his name is Graham. Let's assume that it is for the purpose of Nerd Pledge. But he did a number of TikTok videos with Alex uh, and um, it was, was quite good as well. Okay, so he's going up against David Warner for yeah. sort of cr- cricketers uh, in TikTok fame yeah. sort of sort of deal. You're right. Um, well, Graham, I, I assume that's you. We're going to assume that's you. Um, well done and, and keep ticking, keep talking, keep giving your info to the Chinese government, um, whatever it is that happens on that platform. We're, we're too old for it. We, we, we cannot. We cannot do it. Alex Dury, who I'm just going to assume is uh, the twin of Jamie Dury, um, and, and, and some shenanigans are got up to when, you know, they're... The, man, the manpower probably days. near identical, but isn't there but not a quite. isn't there a big expose on manpower coming out? I feel like there's a podcast. Is there? Yeah, I, I mean, okay. uh, I reckon I've heard in an ad to another show that there's a, sh- a, mm. a podcast being done going behind the scenes of the scandalous life of manpower in the nineties, which of course Jamie Jury, that's really? where he got his start. So watch this space. He was, yeah, people looked at him and said, I want that guy to tell me about gardens. Um, <laughs> I, need, I need him to show me how to uh, screw a couple of two-by-fours together, if you know what I mean. So, Alex, uh, you know, shenanigans indeed would have happened during the 90s with you and Jamie. Um, I, I hope that, that all is well between the two of you. And a Julio pledge also from John Landsall, who's by his name I can only assume he's a real estate agent because you know, they're having a tough time selling any land at the moment. But if you are John Landsall, then nominative determinism That's the way. Uh, is is it's going to come for you in the end there's there's nothing else you can do so thank you to the julios let's get on to the nerds uh, we touched on this one earlier in the week we did so 2.14214 tamara palmer who's one of our faves on twitter as well uh, jeff the clue uh, was that it was a classy dude a family fave, and something to do with wisdom and the West Indies. And we were thoroughly stumped. So I spent quite a bit of time scratching around at the number 214 before our Monday show, and I got nowhere really. There were some interesting 214s, yep. such as Victor Trumpers, in, um, uh, 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 of course, when which was his test-highest score. Um, Greg Blewett made 214, uh, but it wasn't against the Windies, it was against South Africa. So none of them quite worked. I mean, Sean Marsh made a 214, which was his highest score in first-class cricket, but um, Jeff, you've managed to crack the code. I think so. I think so. I'm not, I'm, I'm 99% confident because I was looking through them and, and, and quite a few of them had some of the aspects, but not some of the others. So Sean Marsh does have the 214, which was important. He also had a massive series against the West Indies in 2015. Um, and he also missed a tour to the Windies, a one day tour the next year for the birth of his child. Mm. Um, so those were three things because, because the other, sorry, the other bit that, that you left out with, the hint was that it had to do with wisdom, the West Indies, and a subsequent addition to the family. Oh yes, that's right. So I was yes. I, I was looking for players who had had babies born while they were in the West Indies and things like that. Uh, Ryan Harris missed a West Indies tour for the birth of his child in 2015. He was a classy dude, and he was a wisdom cricketer of the year in 2014. 
And we nearly got there in that he had a T20 bowling average overall of 21.5, but not 21.4. <laughs> so it was not 2.14. But then I remembered that Tamara had said that it didn't have anything to do with bowlers. And she'd said that initially she was thinking of a bowling number because I've met Tamara. I, I met Tamara at a Sheffield Shield game in Sydney last season. And she was there because she has a son who plays has played a few Shield games for Tasmania. And that's why she was at the cricket that day. And so she was saying initially she thought a bowling number because the offspring is a bowler, but then decided not to do that, to do something else. But there was that link about additions to the family. And I thought, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on a minute. Tamara's son is Lawrence Neil Smith, who in 1972 scored 214 on test debut playing for the West Indies Lawrence Rowe now Lawrence Neil Smith was not born until 1999 so I can only conclude that either Tamara or her husband or both read about the exploits of Lawrence Rowe in a wisdom and decided to name their child after Lawrence Rowe and thus we have Lawrence Neil Smith, uh, who's played five games for Tassie thus far and has a, a staring future ahead of him. And that is where I think Nerd Pledge has gone for $2.14 for Tamara Park. That is just outstanding. There's no way I could have made those series of connections. That needed your kind of brain to, to get to that to that landing point. And I think that, man, is it possible that Lawrence Rowe was the Wisdom Cricketer of the Year in 1970? He wasn't. He wasn't, I've, right. I've, I've, he, he was never a Wisdom Cricketer of the Year, sadly. He did most of his um, best works in the West Indies. Right. But, look, that's that's the way that I'm leaning on this one. I love – if it isn't that, that means you, you've done very well to find another way through to the number. It, it, <laughs> so please do let us know, Tamara, on the Patreon DM box, which, of course, we are monitoring closely every day, really enjoying uh, being able to – chat to everyone on there through the week between shows and so on the next nerd pledge is 7.40 it's another double header another double bubble uh, from daniel kelly and stephen Sargent. now jeff there are a few options for 740 historically but the one that stands out is mitchell johnson's seven for 40 against england at adelaide in 2013 the second test in that um, whitewash uh, series um, and well look I, I know that you wrote about this didn't you uh, at the time I think you wrote about it for all out cricket would I be right in saying you wrote about the, yep. the, the Johnson spell and it's one of your sort of early magnificent long form pieces of writing so I, I know you've got a lot of memories from that day. I think it's my favourite piece I've ever written, I reckon. Like, it, it's, it's one of those ones, mm. which happens very rarely, but where I've read it back and thought, I can't do anything better with that. Like, that's, that's everything's in it. Mm. But I remember watching it with, with Phil Walker, the, the editor, when it was live, and it was literally, like, literally I was flinching at times when, you know, we were sitting behind uh, sort of with the ball coming towards us and it was just coming through so fast and at such a horrible sort of head height that we were jumping in our seats when when Johnson bowled it was just one of the most extraordinary sort of 
handful of most absorbing, involving things that I've ever seen. And then add in the sort of comedy elements of, you know, Stuart Broad with the seven-minute sight screen delay and then being bold like stump first ball after the delay. <laughs> and, uh, Jimmy Anderson losing his middle stump and then Johnson coming off for a rest and Monty Panesar batted out about seven overs and then was just clean bold as soon as Johnson came back. It was just an extraordinary, extraordinary day. I didn't watch it because I was playing that day. So I was, but I was doing laps. We were batting. And I was doing laps listening on the radio, you know, which I always did um, growing up and playing cricket. I'd always bring a radio with me and listen to the test match if it was on. But I did go back and have a look. I, I know I wrote, you know, one of your best pieces there. Uh, and as it happens, the reason I'm slightly hungover this morning because I was out drinking with Phil Walker last night, the editor of the Wisdom <laughs> Cricket Monthly and others after we had a net. But um, I, I, one of my worst pieces uh, was before that. Asher series. I was kind of new to it. I was given this column, and the reality is, is that the 2013 Ashes in England, I watched very little of because it was the middle of the election campaign, and as a consequence, mm-hmm. I was working hours that were thoroughly incompatible with staying up from you know half past eight to three in the morning to watch the cricket. So even so, I. I you know, knew of. Well, you were probably up for those hours. Well, it was the other way around. We, we, yeah, we, well, sort of, kind of, sort of. It was more that I had to get up. I think my first phone call each morning on that campaign was half past four. So it was, yeah, they were, they were the hours I was, the bulk of the hours I was sleeping. But anyway, the, the reason I raised that is because I didn't watch a lot of it. So all I really saw was the scoreline 3 0. And having lived in the UK in 2011 and 2012, I had a fairly good idea of that England team and just assumed that, look, Australia, fuck me, they're no chance. Like, look at it, the ramshackle Australian team, just been beaten 4-0 in India, yeah. 3-0 in England, and, you know, um, they're, they're not going to do much damage this time around against a, you know, a great England team that were number one in the world. And I just missed the cues. I didn't quite see that mm-hmm. it was far more competitive in England than, than might be expected. So I wrote this piece saying, you know, the Australian media, the, the contention was the Australian media, get a fucking grip, this Australian team yeah, is shit. Yeah, you parochial hacks. Yeah, this is... And I've got this... Stop pumping up the home And, and there's this line in here. I went back and dug it out just then just for a laugh and I'm saying here, you know, um, the prominent reason latched onto to inspire Australian hope is the suggestion that Mitchell Johnson is a bowler entirely reinvented and so on and so on and so on and talking about his one-day performance yeah. against India. And at the bottom here, I've got um, one line in a news report this week, ably sums up the degree of overreach in this lustful embrace of Johnson's re-emergence. The scary thing for England is that Johnson was not even even trying to bowl fast, I wrote dismissively, and I had after that, sure, just one word. That was written by... That was written by... <laughs> oh, man. What a fucking shocker. Like, I've just completely misread it. And the, the, I think the thing there was... Uh, um, uh, in fact, I know who wrote that yarn. That yarn's written by... Who's turned into one of my best friends in the game, Andrew Wu. Wu, we wrote that. And I'm thinking, this fucking Andrew Wu fella, the WooTube on Twitter, can he be more of a... Yeah. Bar- he had it right. I had it very, very wrong. So when Johnson ran through England, and I, you know, I was there for the Brisbane Test match, uh, and, and I was there at Adelaide as well on the uh, first. Yeah, that I'd been at Adelaide for day one and day two, and I was back in Melbourne on day three to play. So I'd been at, at Adelaide watching Australia rack up plenty of runs, and had been at Brisbane when uh, Johnson. That middle session of the second day was incredible. It was the, the loudest mm. I've, I've ever heard the Gabba when Johnson and, and Lyon bowled out England for a hundred odd. So by then I'd realised that I was wrong. But yes, I thought it was worth reflecting on how far from the mark yeah. I was. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I wrote something before that as well saying like, don't don't put too much store in, in Mitchell Johnson. So <laughs> look, he, he showed everybody. Um, yeah, Good on him. I haven't gone back to dig it out, but it's, it's definitely there. Um, so seven for 40 is what he took against England. It's also, it's a good fast bowler's number because Imran Khan took seven for 40 at Leeds in 1987. Yep. 
and John Snow got his seven for 40 at Sydney in 1971 when he terrorised the Australians there. I think was that the second time they'd played at Sydney? Yeah, it was, the seventh, it was the seventh test match of the yeah. series. So that was the one that tests, England Jesus needed Christ. to, I think they needed to win to secure, I think they won it in the seventh test match. So imagine if we had seven test series now. I know, right? Incredible. We'd be you and I would be like desiccated husks at the side of the road, just like. Gah. But at the same time, I would absolutely <laughs> love it, of course. But there were far more draws yeah. then, so you needed more rubbers to, you know. Anyway, but yes, that, okay. that was Snow's, it, you know, best series. If we if we want to go wacky. Um, in, in the 1880s, we like to get back to some wacky stuff mm. in the 1880s. Dick Barlow is an opening batsman who invented the forward defence, apparently. <laughs> He's like, what an achievement to have next to your name. Um, scored very slowly, didn't make a lot of hundreds, but uh, but did bat for a long time and, and opened the batting in county cricket and, and played some test matches. In one particular test, he he was a left-arm seamer and had a bit of a bowl and ended up taking seven for 40 at Sydney in 1883. Um, so good work, Dick Barlow. I, some, some little numbers that popped up about him. He carried his bat in first-class cricket 11 times, including once when he made an innings of five not out. <laughs> <laughs> So his team got bowled out while he made five runs. I think they made 69 or something. Like, nice. but um, And he also took four hat-tricks in county cricket. So what, a, what, an, what an all-rounder Dick Barlow was. I wonder whether... I think, I think Eddie Barlow took a hat-trick in test cricket, didn't he? I, I don't know if they're related, but... Uh, obviously, the not, South African not by my rounder. research, but um, I reckon no, uh, I might be one, wrong. English maybe I'm maybe I'm conflating a couple of things here, but I've just got a sneaking suspicion that Eddie Barlow might have taken a test hat trick. Anyway, by the by, that's a good one. Eighteen eighty three. The real the real seven for forty. Mm. The, the real quiz has got to be Clary Grimmett <laughs> seven for forty in nineteen thirty six in Johannesburg. His test career best in an innings um, just before he got punted by Bradman um, in nineteen thirty six to South Africa took a, a hat full of wickets and uh, Clary Grimmett took seven for forty. And you know if you listen to this show that I love Clary Grimmett more than pretty much anything in my life. And so, uh, although Mitchell Johnson's the obvious one, surely Clary is where the heart is. Yeah, yeah, why not? I mean, again, you've, you've returned to Clary time and time again. Um, we, were, we were actually, well, let's jump forward. Let's press fast forward to 2.13. So thank you so much to Daniel Kelly and to Stephen Sargent. I, I did want to note as well okay. that uh, there's only one player in men's or women's cricket in any format who's got a career total of 740 runs. <laughs> okay, then. And that is Abdul Samad <laughs> of Canada. Right. whose entire career of places that Abdul Samad played, the glamour of associate cricket. He played in Benoni, Toronto, Potchefstroom, Mombasa, Nairobi, St. John's, Grosislet and King City. King City, baby! That's where the um, the Canada T20 League was that Steve Smith was playing in, sort of way outside of Toronto on some highway somewhere. Speaking of way outside of, you know, we've both been to Benoni and that... That's perhaps the scariest yeah. place I've watched cricket, purely because what you're told when you go out there is that be careful when you are in that part of uh, when you're in that part of Johannesburg. But so he, inc- well, I think because we we walked in the ground and the first thing the press box attendant said was, "Any trouble getting in? Someone got shot out of the gates yesterday." That's right. Yes. Like, oh, good. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although I do remember watching that club game when we were there that afternoon. I think Smith was batting, uh, and I went for a walk, and there was a club game going on at the back of Benoni. And it was joyous. It was like the best kind of cricket. Like people were just absolutely mm. loving it. And you think to yourself, like that is, that's the real stuff. Benoni Hazelhurst. <laughs> Jeff. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. 
So St- Daniel Kelly, Stephen Sargent, seven forty a pop. Let's give uh, Mitchell Johnson to Daniel Kelly, and let's give Clary Grimmett. No, better still, uh, let's give Abdul Samad. Uh, to Stephen Sargent. Yep. Who's to question you on that, Jeff Lemon? No one will. Uh, no. You mentioned Clary. So, look, 213 is our next number, and obviously 213 is a famous number uh, in the final word. I was going to say lexicon. That would be wrong because that's about words, not about numbers. But 213. Pantheon. Yeah, Pantheon. That, that, that sounds about right. So mm. uh, thank you, Sky Ray, for 213, which, of course, Jeff's done a stat man on and gone through almost every possible connotation and permutation. And, Jeff, you're suggesting... 213. <laughs> it's like Steve Austin 316, but it's the final word. Oh, it's yeah. like 213. Well I, was pon- well, I was pondering whether, like, what is the final word special number? Because it could be 213 or it could be 216, the Clary Grimmett number that we, for whatever mm. reason, can't, can't quite ever land. That we never get. So maybe it's 216, maybe it's 213. But if it were to be 213, I think that each time it comes up, it's... Uh, beholden upon us to find other hmm. numbers that you haven't said in Statman. Now there aren't any. There aren't any. You've got every single one. They well, can't well, be. I reckon I did them all. Well, let, 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 <laughs> well give me. I'll, I'll give it a try. You tell me whether this was okay. in Statman or not. Um, well, first of all, I think you probably did have the fact that Eunice Khan played 213 test innings in Statman. Absolutely. I f- I have Eunice Khan's test record tattooed on my left pectoral. <laughs> I was going to say. I thought you were going to say something else there, like the Kelsey Grammer tattoo. Uh, <laughs> What about the fact that it was the cap number of Buster Farris who played six test matches for South Africa between 1962 and 1964? The fact that his parents called him Buster, mm. I think that's just tough, isn't it? Imagine that. Yeah, yeah. Was that his christened name? No, his first name's William, but his parents went with Buster instead. They didn't go with Bill or Willie or or anything like that. They went they went with Buster, okay. Buster Farah. So um, that, that's, uh, that's the 200. Got to get down and Buster Farah. <laughs> You know. uh, so, yeah, okay, so, that's good. It's good stuff, Buster. So in the sixties, all right. Listen up, Buster. Yes, one to it. So, <laughs> okay. so that, that, I'm going to give um, Buster Farrow to Sky Ray. Of course, it could be any number of different um, final word numbers over the journey, but just to keep it fresh, let's go there. Hmm. Anything else for okay. two thirteen, Jeff? Or do you want to? No, Eunice. I'm pretty sure I had. I don't think I did have Buster Farrow. Um, but Sky, if you want to find out everything about two thirteen. I think the episode is called Chasing the Golden Number and it's maybe March. This, I mean, what is time anymore? I don't know what day of the week it is. I've, I've, got, uh, I've got to write like five more book chapters in seven days or something. I don't remember my own name half the time. But it was this year. If you go back and find that, you'll find all the 213s, you know, obviously starting with uh, the Edgebaston 99 World Cup semi-final and Elise Perry's highest score in Test cricket and, and working on from there. And I also, can I just say, I love the name Sky Ray. Sky Ray. It sound, it's like, it's like um, who's the guy out of Mortal Kombat who can summon the lightning and stuff, you know? You shall respect my power. <laughs> I am Sky Ray. <laughs> Yeah, so so that's some pretty badass stuff to bring to this section. Thank you, Sky. Lovely stuff, lovely stuff. Jeff and Sky at rate 213. Another strong name with a 2.24, Jeff, a theme today, I think, emerging here. Desmond Cave. Desmond Cave with 2.24. A, a sort of geological feature name um, with both Sky and then Cave coming one after the other. $2.24. Um, so... Look, this was this. I wasn't sure if I was being psyched out by Desmond here. Desmond sent a clue that said, the hint is that although my nerd pledge is very easy, I'm based in New Zealand and grew up during the great team of the 80s, but that is not my pledge. It's like, okay. So I don't know how 224 does relate to the great teams of the 80s. 
but it does relate to something very, very special. You may remember a few weeks ago, Adam, we were talking on the show about whether anybody has ever made their cap number as a score. Now, it's probably happened with a few of the early ones, with your 37s or whatnot, but has anyone ever made a, you know, a decent cap number score. Well, you might remember I spent, I spent some time looking into this, but the question we had at the time, has an Australian batsman made their cap no. number? So I spent quite a bit of time going through, and I think I set a caveat of it needed to be like 50 or above or something like that, and there was mm-hmm. no one. The closest we got were a couple of players went within two, and Dean Jones made Dean 324 Jones. for Victoria, and of course he was 324 yep. as his Australian cap, so it was close, but not quite what anyone was after. But I, you've got a good one here. Brendan McCullum, not his highest score because he did make a triple century, but the double he made, 224, was also New Zealand's test player in the men's team, 224. Brendan McCullum, 224, 224. If that is not Desmond's $2.24 with a possible New Zealand link, then I am resigning from my career in podcast. It's a very good link. And I, I, I think <laughs> career. <laughs> career in podcast. It's a good link because of the background with uh, with uh, with what we've tried to do before. If any, if any, I remember yeah. actually doing that research on uh, on whether there was a cap that reflected the highest score. I reckon it was the, the day before Winnie was born. I was sitting in the cafe around the corner from here. Mm. I remember that being part of our show the following week. But the 224 in question, uh, he made against India in 2014, which was when he was on that incredible run. He made the triple hundred in the same series. But um, as was the, the theme of those big scores for McCullum, he came in at 30 for three. So... Um, it wasn't as though he was sort of capitalising on a great start. He was digging them out of trouble yeah. and then doing amazing things and uh, wonderfully called by Ian Smith, as, as you'd expect. His was one of the few triple centuries that was actually good. I, I remember writing a piece when Warner got his and people were saying, oh, it was easy, flat track, shit bowlers. And I was like, there, there almost hasn't been a good triple hundred in terms of like coming against challenging bowling in a difficult situation because predictably... People can't make triple hundreds in those situations, mm. but also making a triple hundred in any situation is still really, really hard. But I, I think I'd figured out there were about four out of the thirty-eight triple hundreds that were uh, you know, that came at a difficult spot or came in difficult conditions. And, and one of them was McCullum's one, where they were five for bugger all, and he was batting with BJ Watling yep. in the uh, in New Zealand's second innings of the match to save it. Um, and one was Lawrence Rowe, who came out on the first day of a Test match against. Ah. Uh, West Indy against England rather and, and smashed them everywhere on that first day. So Nice call back uh, to Lawrence Rojeks. Very nicely thank done. You. So thank you to Desmond Kay for 2.24. Brendan McCullum is the man we are nominating for your number and our penultimate pledge today is from Hamish Colley who has sent through $2.35. Jeff, Two thirty-five. Where did this take you? I hope that Hamish Collie lives somewhere like Albury Wodonga, because then he'd be a border collie. <laughs> this number, <laughs> look, the, the 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 most obvious and neat little one that I could find was that it was Ian Bell's highest test score. Yep. And Ian Bell is one of these players that a lot of our English listeners really like. I I can't confess to uh, like he was very nice to watch, but I always found him a bit dull to watch. Um, except in that 13-14, that whitewash series, Ian Bell was the one who could handle Mitchell Johnson's pace. I remember him playing some uppercuts over slip and so on, and, and he looked immaculate in, in that series. So I quite enjoyed watching that little duel where I think his work got undervalued because of the way that uh, the rest of the team got smashed in that series. But that'd be my guess for for a two three five. Yeah, of course, Ian Bell had perhaps the 
best cover drive of his generation. Certainly in terms of England players, it was a glorious stroke. And he did, I think he won like six Ashes series or something ridiculous because he was there in 2005, of course, and he spans, uh, well, his career spans 05 to 15 as far as test play. So he would have been in the winning team in... He would have won four times in England. Yeah, so 05, 09, 13, 15, and then once in uh, Australia, of course, in 10-11. So five times Ashes. And in 13... In thirteen, he was the one who won them the series. He yes. made three hundreds in that series, and you know made a hundred in in each of England's wins. And he, he wasn't necessarily the you know the sharpest wit around. I've probably told this story on the show before, but I do remember twenty thirteen. That was my first time touring around covering a series, and I would get pretty bored in the press conferences, and I would try to ask something amusing or something that I found amusing um, just to keep myself entertained. And there was. I think it was the Manchester game where he'd made hundreds in the first two tests and then he was like four not out when it got rained off on the last day. And I said, oh, Ian, you you were robbed of another century out there. You must be disappointed. And he just gave me this really blank look and was like, what? And, yeah, that's that's what I, I realised. <laughs> Don't make jokes with Ian Bell. I noted last year when we were watching The Edge, of course, that was the, the documentary made by Barney Douglas. We had Barney on the show with Felix White to talk about how they pulled it all together. Um, Ian Bell is featured quite early on. They sort of show the chair that he's sitting in. Um, uh, he's, I know he's sporting a beard in that shot, and I think they use him mm. for like one grab in the entire film. <laughs> so he mustn't have been very good talent. I'm talking about that <laughs> that generation of England cricket. I stuck with the England theme, though, although I went via Gary Sobers, who, of course, took 235 test wickets. More interesting there, though, is that he bowled 7,999 deliveries in test cricket, I note. So I wonder if mm. he knew that coming to the end of his career. Probably not. Other English links, it was Douglas Jardine's cap number, the 235th English test player. Boo. Uh, and uh, But I think I think it's going to be back to an Ashes series in Australia. Not the 13-14 whitewash, but the 10-11 win, of course, in the second innings at Brisbane when they really asserted themselves. It was Alistair Cook who made an unbeaten 2-3-5, and I was there for all of that. Uh, it was uh, over those couple of days that he was batting for. And, uh, yeah, I think that's when uh, collectively Australian fans realised, uh-oh, this isn't going to be like normal. <laughs> this isn't going to be uh, the, the standard... Uh, way in which Australia, you know, sort of pummel whoever comes to Brisbane first up, and then proceed to steamroll them for the rest of the series. They, they, I think they realised by the end of that that test that they had a, a bit of a problem, and in no small part due to Alistair Cook, who went on to make what was it, uh, seven hundred and sixty-six runs for the series, if memory serves me correctly, and two, three, five, not out of those at Brizzy. So. One of those numbers, let's go with that. Let's go with Cookie for Hamish Colley. Seven, seven, 760, was it? Yeah, I, think- I reckon he was just behind Smith because Smith was 774 in the last Ashes and I thought he went past Cook, but... It- yeah, I think seven 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 yeah. sixty six stands out. I don't know why. I can't remember why. It's just one of those numbers that has been on a number of different tributes to Cook when he uh, retired from Test cricket. So the last number we have today, and thank you, Hamish Colley, 2.35. The last number we have is an important number. It's a number... The great. It's a great number from a great contributor to the show. Uh, It's $16.50. It's incredibly generous and take it away. It's F.P. Hicks. It's the great F.P. Hicks who, of course, came to the bosom of the Final Word family by sledging us in the comments on iTunes for being lefty wankers um, and then has since befriended the show in a, a wholesome and loving way. So thank you, F.P. Hicks. Uh, lovely to have you along for the ride. $16.50. Now, this one was tough because obviously you see sixteen fifty and you think, well, it's going to be a match total of wickets. It's going to be 16 for whatever, you know, Bob Massey style or mm. Murlitherin. 
but no one's ever gone 16 for 50. I mean, that would be, you know, that's a very, very cheap 16 wickets if you were able to get, you know, maybe a, a JJ Ferris or someone like that bowling on a goat track in 1878 might have been able to pick up 16 for 50. But there's never been a test return of 16 for 50. Obviously, there's never been one in any other format because that would be, you'd be going very well if you got 16 wickets in a one-day international. Maybe one of those sort of, you know, when they'd have the MCC play 32 <laughs> gentlemen of Victoria or whatever in, in the in the mid-1800s. Um, you could have picked up something like that. So it's not a bowling figure, but I was like, okay, I'm going to have to get inventive for this. I was looking of uh, looking for players who might have made that tally in a in a season somewhere that that didn't stack up. What I did find was we've talked a bit recently about the Antigua Rec, the recreation ground, what a ground, which had one of the flattest tracks in the world. That's where Brian Lara made his 375 and his 400 <laughs> against England. Um, in total, at the Antigua Rec, across his career, Brian Lara scored 1,650 runs at the Rec, 1650, almost 10% of his career total. <laughs> so, well, he made just shy of 12,000 runs, so you're getting pretty close to 10% of that came at the one ground at the Antigua Rec. That's one suggestion. Yeah, the Rec, well, I've, I've been there a few times and loved the place. I mentioned it last week. They've still got on the scoreboard there. Um, which has got it, it's it's not fit for purpose anymore. I mean, they don't play cricket there anymore. The, the, the two times that I went there, um, when there was uh, other sort of people around, one was the night after a Jimmy Cliff concert, who who played on the on the field there, and and the other was during a soccer tournament. But the scoreboard still is there, and a number of scores are on the board. Of course, that's where Viv Richards hit the fastest hundred in Test cricket at the time, fifty six balls, mm. and that's where Mark Waugh made one hundred and thirty nine not out uh, against the West Indies in nineteen ninety one, which was pretty much my password for everything as a kid. <laughs> it was something, some version of, you know, Mark War 139 or something like that. Um, <laughs> couldn't make it up. Couldn't make it up if I wanted to make it up. Uh, uh, oh, Adam. Wouldn't make it up. Uh, so, um, and yeah, and, and of course, uh, the Lara, uh, two world record uh, attempts. But um, yeah, there's still, and, and, and I regret that I don't remember the bloke's name because he's a lovely guy and I've, I've met him a few times now who as soon as you are clearly a tourist or a cricket tourist he takes you around and shows you all the honours boards and and it mm. gives you a sense of the history of the place so I mean Jeff you've got to get there at some point you would absolutely love it you sit in the old grandstands and you just imagine how it must have been um, of course it's across the road famously from the prison that's who used to uh, they, the prison some of the prisoners would come over and help roll the pitch the nets were across the road next mm. to the prison so it's yeah a famous iconic West Indian venue and hopefully one day someone tips in a stack of money from the government and they redo it because it's not that long since it was a test venue. 2009 when England couldn't start their test match at the Viv Richards Stadium because the pitch, well, the run-ups were sand, they were able to move it to the wreck a couple of days later. So we're not that far away from it being, mm. you know, commissioned as a venue. So hopefully one day it can it can ride again because I'll tell you what, the contrast at Viv Richards Stadium, which is the most soulless place on earth uh, and one of the worst cricket grounds in the world, is is uh, it's distinct. You, you really notice the difference. One's a proper ground and one's a nothing. You wouldn't want it to get reanimated if you were England, though, to have to go back to the Antigua wreck. If you're England and you get crashed into by Brian like that, would you call that a Lara Bingle? <laughs> Just a thought. <laughs> On fire today, Jeff. Um, Tell us more. You've done good work here, though. Tell us more about 1650. So I can see here you've, you've done the yards. 1650 is also 
and you will enjoy this as well. I was, I was looking for things that might be in your areas. Uh, 1650 is the number of the test match. Every test has a, a number from the beginning. Test number 1650 was Australia versus Bangladesh in Darwin in 2003. <laughs> yeah, that's was it right. 03? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 03, 03 so. was the was the uh, were the test matches against um, Bangladesh and Sri, Sri, Sri Lanka. And I should say, we're talking about Antigua a moment ago. On my screen right now, the great man from Antigua, Rakeem Cornwall, has the ball in his hand to bowl in a test match in England for the first time. I know you've got a screen next to you as well, Jeff. You, you've probably already seen a couple of deliveries, but I'm riding this. Uh, there's nothing. This no, I'm seeing the do. first one. He's dropped it a bit short and he's been cut away straight to cover, so well saved by the field. Um, Rory Burns is probably not going to towel you up, is he? No. So, um, no. If you're an off-spinner, you probably want to be coming in bowling to Rory Burns. And it- Remember Lyon bowling to Burns at Edgebaston last year and it was just like 43 balls that should have got him out or whatever it was. <laughs> he beat the edge. Yeah, I think the, the, the wind viz or what the crick viz wicket predictor or something had some absurd stat that day about Lyon bowling to Burns. Anyway, sorry, I cut you off because I thought that was worth noting a man from Antigua is bowling right now. I think this, the number that I remember is that Burns had 54 false shots by the time he'd made a century um, and that the Crickviz average says that for every 12 false shots, you get a wicket. So he should have been out five times before <laughs> he made 100 on average. Anyway, Rakeem is, is midway through and over. 1650, we've got the Australia-Bangladesh game. We've also got, and this is my favourite number, 1650 is the maximum number of runs that is theoretically possible to be scored in a completed one-day international if there are no unusual scoring patterns like overthrows or or extras. So if you have 300 deliveries with a maximum possible score per ball of six, 1,650 is the most you can go. If If one batter hit five sixes from the first five balls of every over and then took a three from the last ball of every over and faced every delivery, they would make 1,650. I was going to say, I'm thinking to myself, surely six times, uh, I'm thinking, hang on, that's how much one player, that that reminds me of... how much one player could get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That reminds me of the old 12th man tapes and when they'd have those scorecards at the end of their one-day internationals and it was like 744 for five against, and, you know, Australia needing to make... 30 in the last over and, you know, Shane Warne coming out and winning it for Victoria and Australia and so on and Bill Laurie losing it. So, mm. But, yes, yeah, well, that, that's very that's, – that's sharp work that, that you've gone ahead and worked that out and reverse engineered it. The, I think the sad thing is I'd already worked that out. I, I'd worked that out probably a year ago just for some reason. I don't even know why. I was like, I wonder what's the biggest score you can make. So you and, you and, you so and FP Hicks the worst, gonna, the worst part is I already knew. That's good, though. I mean, it means that you and FP Hicks are, are closer aligned than, than his initial message to us may have suggested. Uh, friend mm-hmm. of – dear friend now of the show, FP Hicks, thank you so much. $16.50, $16.50, that's – Really kind. That makes a really big difference to what Jeff and I are trying to do on the final words. That's the end of our new number today. So to FP Hicks, Hamish, Desmond, Sky, Daniel, Stephen, Tamra, Graham, Alex, and John, you're all part of the Nerd Pledge family. You're all part of the patron community that we have going here on the final word and we're so grateful to have you with us for the ride jeff uh, the weekend show which we're still yet to name we'll do that uh, once we worked out how long this runs for is going to include the chance to do some follow-ups so where we get it wrong uh, or you want to tell us more about your number on patreon we'll deal with that 
here and also just correspondence if you want to drop us a line and uh, and, and tell us a bit more about yourself and uh, Jeff we've got some, some some fantastic messages in this week or when we get it right which we did in the case of Paul Batfay this is a sad bit of correspondence though happy in its own way Paul told us that his dog was named after the cricketing feat that we were trying to work out. Um, we worked out that his dog's name was indeed Booney. Uh, the full name of the dog was David Clarence Boone. <laughs> and we spoke about this only a couple of weeks ago. And, and Paul sent word this week to say that Booney passed away just last week after Aww. a full 14 years, but uh, had managed to sneak into Nerd Pledge before the end before leaving Paul's family. So travel well, Booney, uh, sending our dog love to you and, and to Paul. It's always desperately hard when you lose one of your friends like that. Yeah, absolutely. Go well uh, to Booney and go well to Paul Batfay. Uh, Jeff, we have, uh, we've solved a puzzle uh, through the Patreon DMs this week. Thanks to Abby Sim, who is a gem uh, on social media as well. She's finally worked out Elliot Diamond's 250. We have had at least four bites of the cherry on this, and <laughs> and, and we put it out last week saying we, we are nowhere. We can't work out what this is all mm. about. The clue was that 250, and it related to an innings played last year, we were nowhere, but Abby was right on the money. And, and it related to balls faced in the innings. Um, and, and the other one who worked it out on, on the patron DMs was Tom Stewart, who I hope is the long defender um, who's a big fan of the show so thank you to Abby and to Tom 250 is is split in into parts it's two and it's 50 it's the two from 50 balls that Ben Stokes had accrued by the end of day three at Headingley last year of course came out on the last day and made that hundred to win the test but batted very conservatively ugh batted very conservatively up to that point to make sure he got through to day four with Joe Root at the end of that day. And I even remember writing that stat in my end of play piece saying, you know, two from 50 balls was a pretty extraordinary number to put down next to Stokes's name, you know, known for counter-attacking, although uh, does have the gears as we've seen in this West Indies current test series. So two from 50 balls is the 250. Elliot finally has vindication, satisfaction, justice, and Abby and Tom are the ones who worked that out. And Abby added in her, in her notes to us that her friends and her have been stumping each other with numbers inspired by our work, uh, and they had a very similar number in their challenge recently, which was how she was able to work out uh, what 250 stood for. So fantastic. Thank you, Abby, for playing along. And we might need Abby to help us out on the next one as well, or, or someone from uh, our... Uh, final word crew and our nerd pledge crew so brian arcane dropped us a line after going through his 132 on last weekend's show he was thrilled that he got the full treatment by the way it was a nice tweet about how we were able to teach him something about the women's game some historical references and a great irish victory but his 132 he says relates to two other men that were mentioned in nerd pledge that day and he attached two photos of umpires nigel long and Joel Wilson. So last week, I don't really remember how we were talking about Nigel Long and Joel Wilson, but I know they did get referred to. Andre Van Troost. Andre, Andre Van, Van Troost uh, got got dragged out of the bowling attack after bowling three bounces uh, at head height to Nigel Long, and, and Joel Wilson came up for other reasons, for umpiring reasons, I think. Right. So so one three two 
relates to those two umpires and I would not have mm. a Scooby what he's referring to and I have no idea mm. why he's picked two umpires to, to put in as his nerd pledge but Brian I'm sure it's something great having met him a couple of times so um, if, if you can work out what that means one three two in relation to umpires Long and Wilson do drop us a note on the Patreon or on the other platforms that Jeff and I can be found so we'll skip through to uh, our next bit of feedback Jeff it was from David in relation to his $2.45 we said it was when England bowled out Australia for 245 at Adelaide in 2010 but we were wrong we were wrong. Uh, th- so we have talked a bit about Queensland players who didn't get necessarily their full national recognition, and David had another. Adam Dale's first-class wickets tally. He was a, a Dale freak, uh, was David, a big Dale fan, but decided that Adam Dale's six test wickets would not have been an adequate contribution to the show. So we thank you for deciding not to send through six cents um, <laughs> and instead sending through the 245 that was his first class wicket telly. Uh, next, we have a note from Adam Williams, who's an old mate of mine who I met all the way back in 2005. In fact, I was writing about that this week uh, and the old Victor Trumper cricket board. That was a piece I wrote for The Guardian and the glory days of cricket internet discussion before social media and before we're doing things like we are today. There, there are these old message boards and Adam and I were mates off there and we hung out quite a bit during 2005 and Jeff he wanted to tell you a little bit more about the uh, the clash between Alan Donald and the UAE at the 1996 World Cup. Yes yeah, so I, I had fleetingly mentioned that there was a member of the royal family whose name escaped me in the moment who came out to face Alan Donald without a lid in the grey floppy hat the, the coveted grey broad brimmed floppy of the UAE team um, and so Adam was not not this Adam, not our Adam, but this other Adam was very keen to let us know that that was Sultan Zarawani was the UAE royal who got bumped by Alan Donald. Uh, and there was also a game against England in the same tournament when Neil Smith had to call off play to go and have a massive chunder between <laughs> deliveries, which is we've seen a bit of in the field. Matthew Renshaw springs to mind in India in 2017 as well. Um, we'll, we'll probably reboot that interview we will. before too long as well, so you can you can listen out for that. Matt, Matt Renshaw at his very best, both in our interview and also the press conference that night. I always thought that was quite amusing, really, when they put Matthew Renshaw up to do the press conference that night, when I knew he was only going to get questions about why he retired ill uh, earlier in the day. Anyway, uh, Hypercost, our old mate, uh, uh, statistician, brilliant statistician. Last week, Jeff, we were saying, um, well, the other day, I should say, on the Monday show, uh, we were talking about Charlie McCartney's triple century having been made in 232 minutes, but it wasn't clear from the scorecard how many balls he faced and how you can kind of reverse engineer it and, and create it after the fact. And he, he wanted to tell us that there's a statistician called Charles Davis who's done some great work on creating ball-by-ball um, scorecards for historic matches uh, and his test database is an essential bookmark. So I might tweet that out um, if you're interested in seeing the work of Charles Davis. And Charles Davis has reconstructed or deconstructed or put back together the Charlie McCartney innings and the best estimate is that he made 345 from 269 balls. Not bad shopping. Yeah, and, and then and it's unclear whether he actually might have made 343, 344 or 345, such as the, the vagaries of the scorecard uh, when they went back and compared notes. So, like, maybe they added a run or missed a run or something like that. But it all adds to the mystique, adds to the magic, of course, the... Um, the quickest triple hundred to be made. The last bit of correspondence we have is from Phil Smith. Jeff, last week we went through his number of 4.90 and arrived at the conclusion that it must be Andre Van Troost who bowled fast for Somerset when he was growing up. But, well, he got it wrong. And as a result, we got it wrong. (laughs) 
<laughs> so Phil Smith has messaged us on Patreon with a, a full apology because he's saying he should have written it as, as $4.09, not $4.90, because it was four for nine, not four for 90. I, I did wonder why four for 90 was uh, something that stayed in his mind as, as a great bowling innings because it's a little bit on the expensive side, but fast bowlers often are. Anyway, four for nine is what Shoaib Akhtar took against Somerset up in Durham in 2003. Um, in fact, in both innings of that game, he had a sequence where he took four wickets in 15 balls. Um, and the second time around, he, he bowled out Somerset for about 50, I think, in the fourth innings of that game. And apparently didn't do much when he was up there playing for Durham, but just had this one day where he got really fired up and, and came in and flung it down. So Phil also said that his other overriding memory of the great man in the Northeast was when he decided to join in with a quick hit with my brother on the outfield during a lunch break. The members behind were delighted and there was laughter all round as my brother absolutely nailed one back down the ground. Shoab was only mildly amused and proceeded to absolutely whiz down his next ball in that trademark sling, nearly blowing my brother back into the pavilion. He then headed to the dressing room with an icy grin. That would be scary. Imagine Shoab back there running in at you. Um, uh, unprepared, love it. Absolutely he he doesn't. He, he's not necessarily um, blessed with with the greatest ability to laugh at himself. I feel um, our uh, friend Cam Fink, who's helped us with a lot of our video stuff, told me a story about spotting Shoah Bakhtar in a bar in New Zealand um, some years ago when he, he, Cam was there. Uh, having drinks with some friends and so uh, Cam and, and another of his friends walked up to Shoab and said oh hi can we get a photo and Shoab said of course and so they then handed Shoab back to the camera and then stood together <laughs> to, get, <laughs> to get him to take a photo of them <laughs> which he duly did handed them the camera and walked out of the bar and left. It's an oldie but a goodie that gag oh can I get a photo yeah we'll just stand over here <laughs> It's the sort of gag you'd, you'd love to pull on someone like Shane Warne, who, who would not take kindly to not being recognised, I suspect. Very good, Jeff. Well, I don't think Shoab did either by the description. Anyway, that's the end of all of our numbers, all of our correspondence. So it's time for us to, to breathe in and breathe out. Indeed it is. So patreon.com forward slash the final word. If you're new to the show, as Jeff said off the top, it's the way in which uh, through our wonderful community, we help the show keep ticking week after week after week thank you to everyone who's been part of it and part of the discussion and as we said before if you want to jump on and talk to us uh, on patreon uh, between the shows we really enjoy doing that and with no further ado jeff let's take a breather have a chat about lord's taverners and come back to hear from the twitter king of cricket jimmy nation Jeff, over the last few weeks, we've been talking a lot about the Lord's Taverners and we're proud to do so. We're proud to have them as part of uh, the final word. Uh, they're the UK's leading youth cricket and disability sports charity, breaking down barriers and empowering disadvantaged and disabled young people to fulfil their potential, building life skills, and they use the vehicle of cricket. So many fantastic programs. And of course, the challenge this year in 2020 is that uh, we're isolated. We're, we've been in lockdown. It's a very tough year to raise funds, but these programs remain essential because uh, 12,000 young people in the UK every year are, are engaged by Lord's Taverners. And it's not as though those programs aren't relevant or necessary just because of COVID. They're, they're perhaps more important than ever before. And that's why Lord's Taverners have started their Isolate campaign to help raise essential funds to make sure the programs can continue. It's something that we've all experienced in the last few months is how difficult isolation can be, you know, not 
just not having the access to, to other people, not having that incidental passing company and, and, you know, the ability to just get stuck in your own head mm. and to have everything loop around and over and over again. And I think even in a really robust state of mental health or with a, a good solid foundation of your life underneath you, it, it has still been really difficult for, for, for pretty much all of us in one way or another. But of course, it's more difficult if you're living with a disability or living with disadvantage. People in those situations are known to experience isolation and loneliness at much higher rates. And, and the usual programs that Lord's Tavs are normally able to roll out, they haven't been able to do because of the isolation. So they're uh, trying to bring some focus to that and do some much needed fundraising at the moment and uh, the way they're trying to do that is get donations of eight pounds and then get each person to pass that on to eight friends and see if they can spread the network of donors by doing that to continue that work for more than 12,000 young people. Yeah, that's right. You mentioned before that challenge. I mean, the data we have here is that disabled young people are twice as likely to experience feelings of loneliness compared to their non-disabled peers and it goes without saying how challenging it's been through COVID when many of the programs have come to a halt, so denying uh, many vulnerable participants the opportunity to regularly interact with friends and play sport and so on. And the charity, I mean, it's been going for 70 years, since 1950. It's all about um, laying the foundations for a positive future, a more inclusive community. It provides a lifeline to some of these people at most risk in the community and tackle issues such as knife crime, unemployment, radicalisation, and as we said before, of course, isolation. So the Isolate campaign will have all the details in our show notes today. As Jeff mentioned before, we're basically asking through Lord's Taverners, if you can contribute eight pounds or whatever that works out to in Australian dollars, let's not worry too much about that. The idea is um, if you can do your bit and ask eight people to do the same, it'll play uh, a big role uh, in all of us contributing uh, to making sure that these good people in our cricket community can continue doing most important work. It, it can also solve the question of what a taverner is. Um, do, do you, did, have they given you any intel? Is a taverner someone who hangs out in the tavern a lot? Or Well, that's well, a good question. Maybe it's something we can ask them. Once we're all back and on our feet uh, as far as um, going to pubs and so forth, I'm sure we can go to the Lord's Tavern, which is, of course, next door at Lord's, a place that you and I have mm-hmm. been to a number of times, and have a relationship with the Lord's Taverners in turn and find out yeah. where that... So they're, they're the people who are at, at the tavern. So who, whoever said that going to the pub doesn't bring good things it's, it's created all of this it's created this program so the address to go to is lordstaverners.org uh, or just punch it into google i'm sure you'll find it or go to our show notes and click through to that and uh, see if you can support their good work hi i'm dave warner and you're listening to the final word this is the final word with jeff lemon and adam collins we're uh, sitting on a lovely late Late afternoon, early summer evening in England, we're at the Oval, we're sitting in the seats outside and uh, we've got alongside us, thanks to Kookaburra Cricket, James Neesham, New Zealand all-rounder, lovely to have you along. G'day guys, lovely evening, it's a bit chilly. It, it's just a bit, but it's you know that's sort of in between. You're still wearing shorts though, are you one of these like wear shorts all winter types? Uh, I've just been training, so I'm a bit warm, but you're right, I am. If you see me um, swap the jandals for a pair of sneakers, you know it's it's probably the middle of winter, yeah. <laughs> that seems to be a particularly New Zealand thing, that it's like, even if it's two degrees outside and you live on the South Island, you're like, no, I'm not wearing closed toe shoes. Yeah, oh, it's, it's almost like a challenge. You go to walk out of the house and your missus goes, shouldn't you be wearing shoes? <laughs> no, no, I'm wearing jandals for another week now that you said that. 
<laughs> if you wear clothes, those shoes, the terrorists have won. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Or at least global warming's lost. <laughs> we, um, we had a brief chat to James Franklin a few days ago and, and our opening question to him was, how does it feel to not be the funniest New Zealand all-rounder? Because um, we think you've got him covered. Did, did Frank? Did Frankie think he was funny? No, I, I don't know if well, he I, thought he was. We just told him he wasn't. Yeah, I, I think that, well, he, he fancies himself. As a, as, a, as a funny man, I think. I don't think he'd mind me saying that, but we, we put to him that you were funnier than him, and he seemed to accept the premise as well. I don't think any funny man claims to be funny, do they? I, I don't think I'm that funny. I just don't really care. You have got a, reputa- <laughs> <laughs> you have got a reputation, don't you? I mean, you've been a cricketer who I think anyone who has been involved in social media or Twitter or whatever it is over the last five or six years, you've been prominent and you've developed that, that profile pretty nicely. Oh, I enjoy having fun. I think um, <laughs> social media is. Yeah, I, I think everyone enjoys having like fun. It's like a Tinder profile. There's yeah, people yeah. who put on love to laugh. I and enjoy. Like, oh, it's, you love to laugh. On you're the, the only one. <laughs> yeah. Well. All right. Um, oh, look. I think um, social media is one of those things. I think it, it, there's so much negativity and so much toxicity in it that if you take it seriously, you're in for a rough time. Mm. I think if you if you have a laugh and you don't care and you can open it up and and see sort of 25 people absolutely tearing shreds off you and, and just make a laugh out of it. And I think that's probably the only way to go about it. There was a time there when you were probably better known for your social media presence than your day job. Did, did you feel that for a while there, a couple of years back when, I know you were over here playing county cricket and so forth, but you're out of the national side and, and perhaps, yeah, maybe you were better known for being the funny bloke on Twitter? Yeah, I think it becomes a lot easier to, to be a bit of an idiot on social media when you are so separated from the team because mm. you, you almost don't think about things you shouldn't be saying or, <laughs> or things you shouldn't be talking about. And I did get the odd reminder where the, the Black Cats manager would, would give me a call and tell me to delete something or something like that, and I'd think, oh, that's right, I am. I'm an ex-Black Cat, <laughs> and hopefully a future one as well. But, um, oh, look, I think when, when you're in the public eye and when you're, um, I suppose, in a team unit with lots of other people, you, you do have to think more about um, how it comes off as a collective and how it reflects on the group, which obviously um, tempers a few things that you might think are, are pretty humorous at the time, but um, you just have to yeah, have a little bit more of a, a deeper think about it. Have we're, you taking, we're taking a break here so you can put on your... What you get? Your gelée. Your gelée. It's a, it's a gelée. You actually had it put on for you. That's, by, what, it's, that's what it's called, isn't it? A gelée? Yeah, yeah, whatever it is. Willie Nichols, the New Zealand team media it's, manager, has come over and literally put it over your shoulders. Gelée. It's Thanks, French for vest. Well, because the blokes running around in France protesting everything with the fluoro yellow vests on. They're, they're the gelée jaune. It's also yeah. a beautiful Kiwi thing because mm. it's clearly cold, yep. yet I'm still fully exposed yeah. from the sort of shoulders outwards, <laughs> so I still feel like a man. Normally so I take these from photos... From down and from bicep down, yeah. everything's open. I've basically got only my <laughs> vital organs looked after, and then everything it's, else can go through itself. It's pretty much armour. It's basically a mm. modern version of armour. You gird your loins, quite literally, you know, cover the important areas that might yeah. get you stabbed. I'm about to start jousting. Yeah. <laughs> um. Normally when I take the photo for this podcast, it's when you're not watching, but now you've got the gelée on, I'm going to get you to pose for one in the middle of the middle of the interview. Well, yep. We may as well take advantage of the situation as rare as it is. Well, well I'm going to ask a question. W- with that gorgeous. online stuff, have you ever thought about following the Sachin model and just having the most boring account of all time where all you do is tweet happy birthday to various cricketers from around the world? <laughs> is, re- really? Is That's that whole thing a professional happy birthday Am I going to get a lot of yeah. hate speech if I say I don't follow Sachin on Twitter? Oh, probably. But we'll probably get a lot. Nice the, the one you've got to um, look for is Magic Johnson, yeah. the NBA executive. He has right. easily the most boring... Twitter account of all time <laughs> not to mention that he's also wasted the world's best porn star name on a basketball <laughs> <laughs> I'd never thought of it that way Magic Johnson Magic Johnson 
Yeah. Um, it's basketball. It might all be related. Yeah. It sounds, like, it sounds like a kid's book that's gone horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I also wanted to ask you about... There was a, We listened to a podcast you did with our colleagues, uh, Will McPherson and Vatishana Hunter-Raja. There was a lot of golf chat on there. Golf, to me, is the most boring sport of all time. And I like cricket, which is, you know... It's up there in terms of long things where nothing much happens. Why is every cricketer so bloody obsessed with golf? Yeah, I, I've given it up, golf. I, I I'm just, so relieved to hear that. I spent about a thousand pounds on a new set of golf clubs expecting to become really good <laughs> and I got worse and I got so frustrated that I uh, threw them away <laughs> and I now refuse to play. So that's been great. I, I, I got so much spare time. My family knows who I am again. The dog gets fed. It's fantastic. I don't have six hours out of my day every day. I'm just imagining a scene like, you know, where the guy throws the engagement ring off the pier after the, the affair's broken up, just hurling golf clubs into the sea one by one. Uh, yeah. I, I'm trying to get rid of them, but the problem is they're left-handed and an inch long. So it's very rare. I might have to call Jacob Orr up. Frankie, is he left-handed, actually? Uh, I yeah, can't sure. Remember. He might be looking for a new yeah. set. He's not playing cricket anymore. He's so a coach now. And he's coaching up at Durham, I think. Maybe I can get a T20 gig by giving him some golf clubs. Hmm. Or is that tampering? No. <laughs> I, 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 I see a way through. <laughs> you are back in the national squad, though. I mean, fair while out of the national team. You come back in, slap a shitload of runs last year, including nearly the fastest 50 of all time or whatever it was. And, and here you are in the World Cup. Did you think 12 months ago, or maybe 18 months ago, that, that you'd actually play in this tournament? No, to be honest. I think... It's referred to as the fastest 48 of all time, by the way. <laughs> um, no, I, There's no, a whole I, cricket info category for that. Yeah. There will be I, I've done. tried to have it brought down, <laughs> but no, they won't reply to my emails. I, I think it's the biggest lie told in professional sport when you if someone gets interviewed who is out of a team for two years and says, I always believed that I would make it back. I always believed that I was good enough to succeed. I, I think it's absolute bollocks. I think, of course, there were moments, extended periods of time, where I didn't believe I was ever going to play for New Zealand again. And I think you'd be a madman to not have those periods. And I think, for me, it was a case of recognising that I was essentially by myself. It was up to me to make my career succeed. It wasn't anyone else's responsibility. It wasn't a batting coach, a bowling coach, a a mentor, anyone like that. It it was about me knuckling down and and putting the work in and and realising that it's not going to be a a quick fix. It's, It's going to take time. And I think... My move to Wellington at the start of last season was really a, a case of me really putting my balls on the line and, and going somewhere new and wanting to prove from, from ball one that I was good enough. And Obviously, it worked out. You don't do many interviews with people who it didn't work out for. It's, it's sort of a self-selecting group. And Look, I'm just ecstatic to be back here and, and as you mentioned before, on, on one of the most beautiful grounds in the world preparing for a World Cup game. Mm. So you had about a year and a half out of that national team and, and some pretty dark days in there. You said that you almost decided to walk away from the game tell us a bit about that time and and, and how much you didn't really want cricket at that point well I think we obviously had the Champions Trophy over here in 2017 and and that was an extremely poor showing for us and as a team and for me individually and I sort of went through that winter preparing for the next summer expecting to be the the number one white ball arounder in the country and come that September uh, I was obviously dropped from the Black Caps and then not even selected in the NZA team to tour India so basically in my mind I'd gone from the number one all-rounder in the country to not one of the best 27 players in the country which was was pretty galling and I was very very angry about that I was very bitter about that Um, I went out in a domestic season with a chip on my shoulder wanting to score 100 ball double hundreds every innings and 
and basically show people how wrong they'd been and and I think it sort of started a bit of a downward spiral for me where my expectations were so far beyond reasonable that um, it wasn't possible for me to have a good day playing cricket and I think when you get into that situation the only way is downwards really if, if I scored 80 I wanted 100 if I scored 140 I wanted 200 mm. and basically there was no point where I was happy with, with how I was training or how I was playing and basically got to the point where as I've mentioned in an interview before I, I sort of opened the curtains hoping that it was raining because that was a day where I couldn't fail and I think when you get into that kind of scenario it's very very difficult to succeed and, and more importantly very difficult to enjoy things and taking a break from the game was was comfortably the the best decision I've ever made I think I've mentioned that I did want to retire but I was convinced not to um, I was convinced to take a fortnight off and or two or three weeks off and and sort of gradually return to the game and and um, yeah obviously came back and had a, a wee bit of success but the uh, the time off that winter and um, was certainly the catalyst for the comeback from there were there any other techniques you deployed to arrest that spiral because it feels like what you're saying there that it was a fairly protracted period of time where you felt like shit with your cricket I mean it, it's not a it doesn't sound like an easy thing to just take two weeks off and be good as gold again no it wasn't I think yeah right it was an extended period of time it was it was sort of four months or so of sort of getting worse and worse and uh, to be honest when I came back to the cricket after three weeks off I didn't want to I I sort of was dragged kicking and screaming back to Dunedin basically because I'd have to either retire or or go back right and um, I was still centrally contracted at that time and there was a long time left on that contract and basically retiring meant giving all that up so to be honest it was a financial decision to go back to the game mm. but I basically went back with zero expectations and just wanted to, to go out and, and have fun and enjoy the other lads in the team and um, I didn't really expect to, to do any good because at that time I didn't believe I was good enough to, to succeed in domestic cricket so I just wanted to go back and, and enjoy the I suppose the rest of the season and uh, I had a little bit of success um, scored a few runs at the end of that season but then really it was the winter where I sort of got things back on track and then as I mentioned before moved to Wellington and, and sort of got things on the up again. You said that during that time you went to see a psychologist it was something that stood out to me because I also did the same thing for the first time in the last year or so um, how did that benefit you or how did that shift your mindset a little bit? Well a 180 to be honest I think I've always been a, a bit of a perfectionist and for me it was really about approaching cricket with a totally different mindset and, and sort of thinking about what could go right rather than what could go wrong and um, I used to always be a guy who would not leave a net session until I hit 10 cover drives perfectly and if I hit 9 in a row then I'd bash the stumps over and start again and I re- sort of realised how harmful that was to my psyche mainly as a person rather than mm. as a cricketer and I think for me now I really try and care as little as possible about the the external results of training I try and go out and throw the ball around and, and have a bowl and have a hit and, and try and think as little about the actual outcomes and more about the process I know it's a cliche but um, I think for guys who are I suppose really harsh on themselves as a natural mode I think it's really important mm. it's, I've noticed this trend in sports where you know people are talking about mental health a bit more and there's a lot of praise for it, oh it's very brave for so and so to come out and talk about whatever but there's still a kind of pressure to have the happy ending story as in I had a really dark time and then I turned it around and if you're someone who's dealing with those issues longer term there often is no happy ending, it's a matter of just learning to manage it and trying to manage it as as best you can. When you were on that pod back in 2016 you were quite upbeat saying that you'd, you'd put the disappointment of not getting in the 2015 World Cup behind you and you were on the up and up and then it sounds like you had a real dip as well after that um, so I'm, I'm sort of wondering where 
do you think was that a time when you were maybe telling yourself that you were okay when that wasn't really the case or I was lying yeah yeah I I I think it's very easy to come across as confident and come across as um, all together and I think I used to see it as as sort of essential to being an elite athlete because if if you show those weaknesses to other people then they know that you're human and they'll they'll right. exploit them and, and those sorts of things and and I think the way I've turned it around is really I suppose embracing those weaknesses I suppose as strengths and knowing that I'm human and I have these thoughts and but everyone else is human and has those thoughts as well so you know if a big quickie's coming down and abusing me and whatever like I know that that actually probably comes from a place of insecurity for him he's probably not all that confident in what he's doing and he's trying to project a bit of aggression to to seem like he's got it all together and I think once you see all those other humans as as I suppose vulnerable and and I suppose flawed people I think it makes it so much easier because you have so much less expectation and like I've mentioned if I go out and nick off first ball and walk off then I'll happily accept that I think when you have no expectations it's not about not caring about succeeding I certainly care about succeeding I certainly want to win this World Cup but I can live with myself if we don't yeah. it seems to mirror actually some comments that Glenn Maxwell made to us last week where for him a major part of this was finding where cricket fit into his life more broadly and not having it be the only thing that defined who he was as a human being mm, absolutely and and um, I sort of see Maxi. I see a little bit of myself in Maxi. to be honest I think he's probably seen as as sort of so talented and mm. with so much ability and, and you sort of look at someone like that playing and you think how can they have self-doubt when you can play the shots that he can play and I won't mention names but I've, I've talked to other I suppose you'd call them superstars around the world about their self-doubts and, and you sort of realise these guys that are absolutely bulletproof from the outside have the same doubts that, that anyone else does and yeah. Maxi's obviously had his struggles sort of being in and out of the Aussie team like I have being in and out of the New Zealand team and mm. And I think it's natural to sort of go, am I good enough to succeed in international cricket? But I think you don't really have to answer that question if you don't really mind. Mm. So, <laughs> so it's kind of a matter of um, being able to accept that you're not all right mm. rather than having to put across that, that image that you are all right. Well, not, not all right, just not perfect. Or just, or just when, think, when you're not, you know, being able to kind of... Like, there seems like there's a bit of liberation in being able to say, I'm not going well when you're not, and then, mm. and then that helps you actually get past it more effectively than, than pretending that everything's okay. Yeah, well, I, I think, for me, it's accepting some days I'm going to be junk, mm. and that's okay. Yeah. Some days I'm going to go out and shallow catch, score four off eight, and go none for 50 off seven, and... <laughs> What's wrong with that? Sounds you know? very familiar. Whereas I used to, I used to literally stand at the top of my mark, just going, "God, I hope this doesn't go for six. It sounds like, terrifying. Maxie talked about the same thing of the, the yeah. fear of failure, of sort of standing on the edge all the time and worrying about going over. And it sounds like exactly the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's all bound by expectation. And look, I think you tell yourself. I mean, positive self-talk is something that I've embraced immensely. And I think. It's one of those fake it till you make it situations if you have these positive mantras where you, you back yourself up and you, I suppose you talk to yourself as if you would talk to one of your mates about how they're going rather than being so self-critical. And you start to believe those things, you start to puff your chest out and that's what I feel now playing cricket. I feel like I can take anyone down on my day, I might not, I might, you know, I'll take my chances. It's not an easy thing when you're someone who's prone to getting stuck into yourself, I am one of those, that when 
you're told not to, when you're told, no, no, just be kinder to yourself. It's a hard habit to break. In terms of looking at, at maybe environmental factors which helped you to do that, you've talked about the move to Wellington a couple of times now. So to what extent did that change of scenery help inform this, this shift you needed to make? Well, I owe a lot to, to Wellington, I think. Bruce Edgar, Hamish Bennett, basically the senior players there are, were really welcoming. And I, I, I basically didn't have a technical conversation about cricket the entire six months I spent there. I, I think we talked a lot more about how I was enjoying it, what, what my mental processes were, you know, did I feel like I needed to train that day and all that sort of stuff rather than sort of where's my front elbow, how's my back lift, right. all that sort of stuff. And I think for me, Look, I don't have the greatest technique batting or bowling. I, I will never have the greatest technique batting or bowling, but that doesn't mean I can't succeed. And, and I think for me it's all about knowing how to get myself in the, the best frame of mind for batting, whether I have a good net or a bad net or get hit in the head three times or get my poles rocked and actually going out the next morning in the game knowing I can succeed. And I think that's what you see a lot with guys who have kids later in their career. Right. They, they somehow, well, they start to not really mind too much if they have a bad net or or whatever because they've got something else that they're focused on so for me that something else is is just backing myself and and going out and believing that i can succeed james nation we could easily talk to you for another hour but there's a world cup on and you should probably get on with that so thanks for joining the final word cool thanks guys This is the final word, weekend edition. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Thanks again to Jimmy Nation for making himself available during last year's World Cup. I hope you got plenty out of listening to that, either for the first time or, or for the second time, if you were with us for the journey during the World Cup uh, last year. And Jeff, that brings us to the end of another episode. It is, and we still don't know what it's called. So if you can think of a name for what this should be, I mean, it, it's, it, you know, in the most straightforward way, it might be the final word history show or it might be the history hour or it might be history tales or it might not involve the word history at all. Uh, but th- that would be helpful to be descriptive for people who don't know what it is yet, but maybe you want to be all sort of cool and like in the know about it. I don't know. The options are open to you. Uh, the most obvious and direct way to get in touch with this is through Patron, if you're a member on there, patron.com slash the final word. If you're not, you can help keep the show rolling. Um, otherwise, use one of the other channels that you can find on the internet. Um, thanks to everybody who's supporting and thanks to everyone who's listening and enjoying. I hope you're enjoying it. If you're still listening to the show this far in and you're not enjoying it, then you've got a problem. And thanks to everyone behind the scenes who gets us on the park each week. So the Bad Producer Productions uh, label, as you described it the other day, Jeff, on the weekly show, I quite like that, the idea of us being on a label. Never thought of it in those terms before, but no, they yeah, make... I just signed a deal with a label. <laughs> they make they make great podcasts. That's what it comes down to. Great sports, arts, comedy. If you, Ooh, if Shannon you, Gabriel's coming off the field. So he is. Something. So he is. He's coming off the field on my screen as well, and I think you're a little bit ahead of me. So maybe he's been off the field and he's starting... Well, maybe that was a replay of him going off the field. That shows how much attention I've been paying. That's good. We've been, no, paying, we've again been paying attention to the show. Uh, but yes, badproducerproductions.com, that's always in the show notes. You can see some of the other fantastic podcasts they make. Jay Mueller, Astrid Edwards, and of course to Dave Collins, who edits us week in, week out. Our sincere thanks to you. And of course... He must be so sick of us by now. He, Imagine having to listen to... Yes. And, <laughs> like, you can't even tell us to shut up because we're just... We'll just keep going. Yeah, and, and not just the bits you hear either, all the bits that we stuff up along the way and restart and so on. It's, um, it's, uh, he makes us sound a lot better than we are and we're grateful for it. 
And last but not least, you complete me. everybody who listens to us week in, week out and corresponds with us and uh, you know enjoys what we do. We are having an absolute ball uh, through 2020 making this show uh, and we're glad that we're now doing it twice a week, which means, Jeff, we'll be back early next week with another weekly edition of The Final Word. And until then, goodbye. Yeah, I've got to go write a book. See you later. I had to go about it right.